Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. In October 2014, the University Libraries, the Confluence Center, the UA School of Art, the UA School of Journalism, and the Center for Border and Global Journalism convened to hold an opening event for the Documented Border Exhibit and Digital Archive. The Documented Border Exhibit and Digital Archive shares original border-related research material collected and curated by University of Arizona faculty along the U.S.-Mexico border. This innovative open-access archive documents personal stories of journalists who have been silenced and government processes that cannot be videotaped or photographed. The documented border can be accessed through the UA Library's special collections. Today on 30 Minutes, we'll hear celebrated author Luis Alberto Urea give the keynote address. Born in Tijuana to a Mexican father and an Anglo mother, he describes the change in border policies that he has seen in his own lifetime as well as his resolve to document the border. Buenas tardes, Baja Arizona. <laughs> Tijuana back in the house. Weren't we just here at the book festival? Yeah, I was sitting here with Richard Russo. This, time, this thing is not just going to hold it. And then the last time I was here, before Richard Russo, I was here with Mayor Rothschild. You remember, he said it was a key point of his administration to get me to move here. I'm like, where's my, where's my house? Where's my job? So I thought I would tell you some things about what all this means to me and, uh, you know, what the frontera means to me. Mi consul, it's an honor to have you here. Javi, ¿qué pasó, güey? I'm here with friends, you know, it makes me very happy. Um, you know, my uh, uncle, Carlos Hubbard, was from Sinaloa. And uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, he published a newspaper called Rumbos. And um, back in those days, you know, being a newspaper man was safe for him. He had a big Ford LTD, a white LTD, and it said in the front window, Prensa, press. Uh, and that meant we could drive anywhere in Mexico in this car. And it was cool for me because I would go down there and we would go to any city in Mexico and my uncle would find the newspaper publisher. And then we would you know, be like VIPs. Um, he also owned a movie theater, El Cine Pedro Infante. So part of my job in the summers was to drive around with the loudspeakers on the roof and announce news and coming features at the theater, you know? So there'd be like, you know, Increíble noticias, Irma Urrea, campeona de boliche, se ganó un trofeo. And then it'd be like, Ah, el domingo, el domingo, el domingo, en el cine Pedro Infante, el increíble Godzilla, rey de los monstruos, y love story. And we'd drive around. Who wouldn't want to be a reporter, right? But I have to tell you, you know, the frontera has changed so much. You don't need to, you don't need me to tell you that. Um, I'll tell you a little story. It's a little jocular, but I'm dead serious about the changes in the world. In 1962, my family had left Sinaloa, my grandparents and my tias and my dad, 
and they came to Tijuana, where I was born. So in 1962, um, I was seven years old, and uh, my dad and I would go, I was already living in San Diego, but we'd go back and forth across the border, you know. Tijuana was not this mega tech border that you see now. If you remember, if you know that area, it was, you know, the river, Cartolandia, you know, where people lived in little shacks, and you would enter through these wooden sheds, the Mexican side, the, the aduanas were like, yeah. They wouldn't even come out. And when you came back, it was a couple of customs guys waiting at the, at the thing. And we'd get my grandma, Guadalupe Murray, <laughs> or Murray, and we would bring her to San Diego for weekends. Now, being from Rosario, Sinaloa, which was a really special little town, everybody from Rosario has this incredibly inflated sense of Rosario. They love Rosario. Um, when 100 Years of Solitude came out, people said it was written about Rosario. <laughs> Everything about Rosario is magic to them. So everywhere they go, you'll find a club rosarense, Rosario Club. So we had one in San Diego. And my grandma would go to San Diego to go to the club rosarense. And it was kind of weird to me because they were all old people who would sit around talking about Rosario. Nothing, um, they play mahjong. So they'd have a cup of coffee, and somebody'd say, Oye, compadre, Rosario, que iguanas. And they'd go, I see. They'd drink it. Oh, you remember Rosario? Rain started every year, June 7th. Ay, que lluvia. <laughs> that was it. That's all they did. So my grandma, Mama Lupita, would go to these things, and those of you who don't know, but I think you all do, La Cultura. You know, our, our old-timers are always thinking of businesses, right? There was no Mexican sleeping under a cactus, like a Taco Bell or anything. Everybody was thinking up these things, and my abuelita wanted to make a negocio. Ganar dinero, dinero americano. And so she's looking around the Rosario Club, and she decides, you know what they don't have? They don't have green parrots. Todo el mundo tiene perico. Right? ¿Verdad que sí? Sinaloenses over here. Perico verde. Our, we had one named Periquito Urrea. And he was sitting in his cage and he yelled that all day long. Periquito! 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 Urrea! So my grandma thinks, you know what? I'm going to make a million dollars if I sell parrots to Grupo But it was illegal. She couldn't bring parents from Tijuana. So this my grandma became a gangster. <laughs> my grandma enters the world of crime, 1962. I was there to watch this. I was, you know, the good little boy in my little shorts and stuff. You know, my dad takes me down there. We go, and my grandma makes us go to the fruit market in Tijuana. And she says, voy a comprar un perico. Ah, sí, mamá. Hey, vamos a, vamos. Okay. So we go to the fruit market. My dad's like, I don't know. We go, and she gets a little parrot, she pulls out a little bottle with eyedroppers, it's full of tequila. She's <laughs> like three or four drops of tequila, you know. And the parrot goes to sleep. So we're watching this, like, wow, yeah. And Grandma takes a piece of newspaper and wraps up the periquito so it looks like an ice cream cone, right? I know this is a very somber event, but 
My grandmother, to put this indelicately, was a developed woman. So she took the ice cream cone of periquito and put it down her cleavage. Vamos a San Diego. So we get in the car, we're driving to the border, you know. I'm in the back, terrified. I've always been afraid of authority, so I'm thinking, La Migra is going to kill us all, you know. And my dad, when you used to pull up, you, you probably remember this from Nevada's, but you know, you'd pull up and all you'd see is the guy's uniform. He didn't really care. He'd be standing there, you know. And as a little kid, all I would see was this much in my dad's window. And the guy was already turned away from us, looking at the next car. And we pull up and he says, uh, Hola, amigo. Tiene papelas? My dad's like, green card. That's oh, okay. He bends over to my grandma. Senora, papelas? Visa. Oh, how about you, buddy? I'm a U.S. citizen. Okay, buddy. Right? And he goes to turn away. This is where the parrot wakes up. So, I see the guy turn this way. And my dad, you know, putting it in gear, we hear, <laughs> And the whole world stops for a second. And I see the panza come back to the window like this. You know? And the guy leans over again and looks in at my grandma. Now we're all sitting there like, isn't that interesting? Some weird noise inside a kid. Now, I just want to describe something to you in the easiest possible terms. You cinema fans, science fiction fans. Remember the movie Alien? You remember an alien when the monster came out of the guy's chest? So there's my very elegant grandma sitting there like, yes, and all of a sudden, think, oh, you know, and she's looking at and this head comes out of her, I was, I was in the back seat wetting myself. And this was highly illegal. And I don't think you get away with it these days. But the guy is just looking at us and he just says, get out of here now. Stop that was the border I grew up with. Now my recently deceased friend, Charles Bowden used to go, he, he was driven to distraction because I actually love the border. I actually love Mexicans, man, you know? We were on a panel one time, and I was talking about hope, and how we have fraternity, how there's a long history of family, how there's a long history of brotherhood, of, of culture. And I hear Bowden down the line says into his mic, I don't know what planet you're from. <laughs> and I said, I'm from planet Tijuana. Um, there is that, and it's disappearing. To give you an idea of how things have changed, my grandmother's great-grandson was burned to death by manacles. Her other great-grandson died of AIDS. Her great-granddaughter was shot through the spine with a 44 magnet. Her other great-grandson died of a heroin overdose. Her other great-granddaughter died of a heroin overdose. That's how things have progressed. Her youngest great-grandson, Juanito, was shot in the head. While he was driving, gangbanger in the back seat shot him. Not a genius. They were driving down the freeway. Boom! Of course, they have a huge crash. Now, Juanito thought he was American. 
He thought he'd been born here and raised here and found out he'd been carried across as an infant and suddenly, when he got better, was deported. Now I want to tell you, weird happy ending to this story. He paid a coyote, or the family did, not me, in case any representative. <laughs> and a lot of money, and he was sent to Bellingham, Washington. Guess what his first job was? Gardener for the U.S. Border Patrol. <laughs> Everybody got to save a buck, including the Border Patrol, I guess, but that's what he did. He was a gardener for the Border Patrol, the Canadian Border. You are listening to celebrated author Luis Alberto Urea give the keynote address to the documented border exhibit and digital archive on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Um, it's, it's astonishing to me how things have changed. You know, from those days with my tío, rumbos, prensa, everything fabulous, to that ever-growing tide of violence and terror. In 1996, I did an interview in La Jornada in Mexico City. I'd become friends with Homero Arigis, the poet, who was being stalked for his work in ecology and saving turtles. He had to change what stop he got off every day at the subway. When I did my interview in La Jornada, they told me, be out of town before this article runs. Porque eres crítico, eh? Don't, don't. You, you say some critical things. You have to get out. In 2009, I took my family to Quintana Roo, and we were pulled out of the truck by men with machine guns. They held my little nine-year-old daughter at the point of machine guns. And just for one jerk of a finger, we could open her. So this world that you're hearing about is immensely important, impactful, life-changing what's happening here. I'm telling you, you're going to see this, if we handle this correctly, like kind of a fire out there. I've already heard from a journalist who wants to come up about it. There are so many more stories. I'm so excited what can happen through this. I've been working the last two years with deported U.S. soldiers. You know, you have over 7,000 combat veterans deported in Mexico who thought they were going to get clearance to be citizens after they fought for us. They can never come home. They are trapped. There's a whole society of these guys in Tijuana. They're the ones I know, but I know they're here. I know they're, I hope they're not in Juarez, but I'm sure there are some. There are soldiers in Kosovo, Ireland, uh, the Caribbean. It's incredible. Um, the guys in Tijuana, there are actually World War II veterans dying in Tijuana, still deported. There are Vietnam veterans ill and dying in Tijuana, deported. One of the ironies is those troops who are down there can never come home, but as soon as they die, they can then be brought home and buried with full military honors for serving and fighting for you and me. That's a great story. I think that's a story this has to deal with. Um, part of what ails me with our border legacy is, is how much is hidden and how much is a war of propaganda, how much value and power the words illegal and alien have it sounds like bank robber Martians, not human beings. 
And I always tell students when I talk to them, and I talk to them all year long, you know, you are hearing propaganda war. If people were called refugees or pilgrims, there'd be a whole different attitude about it. And most people don't know the law. So fortunately, students are computer savvy, so I give them directions to go find federal law and look it up. And they're pretty shocked once they find it, because they think it's a felony, it's not. So those things are, are, are all happening. But the story that Veronica alluded to, I thought I would tell you, I know some of you who've seen me at the festival have heard this before, but I think it's, it's, it's exactly what we're talking about. It's certainly what I'm talking about. Um, and that is that I met this person in Baja California um, in the 70s. No, in the, actually in the beginning of the 80s. And um, I was working with this relief crew in Mexico. I worked in the Tijuana garbage dumps, you probably know that. My first books are about it in the orphanages and so forth, trying to, trying to help. And um, we would drive all over Baja California Norte, and we were in this place called Valle de las Palmas. And uh, it's a beautiful place, a rural place. And it's south of Tecate, you beer drinkers. Tecate beer comes from Tecate. And uh, it's still a really beautiful kind of quiet, Mexican town. There's a little bit of drug war in it, but not, not like elsewhere. Anyway, we got a radio call. There was a little uh, settlement near there called La Ladriera, south of Tecate. And they called us on the radio and they said, there's been an emergency at Ladriera. There's a child burned. Can you go see? So we drove to Ladriera. It was about 75 miles, maybe 50 miles from by the Armas. Now, Ladriera is a place where the people have squatted on land because it's a very fertile mud zone that has a kind of mud that makes adobe really well. And many of them were garbage pickers, so the municipal garbage dump for the region is on the hill. La Riera was below. And to make the adobe, of course, you make the bricks and you fire them in a kiln, and a little girl in her nightgown got soaked in fuel and ignited. And they don't have anything. I mean, they don't have anything. So we pulled up. I was the translator. I was just a kid. I thought I was going to write poetry and novels forever. But this is what changed it for me. So we got out of the vans, the pastor and me, and they said, she's in this shack over here. She up heard this morning. It was midday, late, maybe two. And we went into a little shack too short to stand up fully in, completely dark. And we went in the dark, bent over like this, and there was this little girl, 10 years old, naked, burned all the way from her throat to her feet, standing with her arms out like this, shaking in the dark, just staring at us. Um, I thought, I don't know what I thought. I don't know what I thought. Any of us who cover this stuff get to those places where we don't know how to respond. Um, and we got her help, and she was sent to uh, San Quintin on the way to La Paz in an airplane, and she was healed. She she lived, um, but thereafter we were kind of heroes to this place. So we went and saw them every other week. And at that point, I realized that I wanted to bear witness to what I was seeing. I wasn't going to write Stephen King stories anymore. I wanted to write about this. I didn't know how or what I was doing. So I had a blank book. I always had a blank book, and I was standing there at La Riera, leaning on one of the vehicles like this, writing in my journal. And along came a man, one of the workers. Now, when you pick garbage, 
you use a long pole with nails at the end. And then, you know, it's a very skilled labor. It's, it's fascinating to watch. And he was walking along with it. And he had a handkerchief tied on his head. Four knots. Never forget it. And he was looking at me, you know, and he stopped. And he came over and he was watching me. I was writing. I was like, I said, well, you guesses. What are you doing? He said, nada. I'm just writing my journal. He said, ah, journal. That's great. What's a journal? I said, it's how it's going to My diary. Really? What's a diary? I said, what's a blank book, man? It's a blank book. What are you writing about? I said, what's I writing about? What I'm doing, what I see, where I'm at. He said, a book. Are you writing about this place? I said, yeah, yeah. Said, you writing about the people? Yeah, man. Writing about me? Well, I was like, I probably will, yeah. <laughs> and he looked at me. He said, is anybody going to read it? I said, I don't know. I hope so. Kind of made a deal with God that this is what I'm going to do till somebody reads it. I see. He says, ¿sabes qué? Qué bueno. They always call me Guarito. Qué bueno, Guarito. Blondie. He says, you know where I was born? I was born up in the garbage dump. You know what I did in my whole life? I picked the garbage up there. And when I die, they're going to put me up in the garbage. He said, Guarito, tell them I was here. That's it. That's our job. Tell them I was here. That's what this thing is going to be doing. You know, that's what I'm dedicated to in all my work. And I, I know my colleagues are, are the same. Tell them I was here. Sometimes I found out to my shock, it's, you know, tell a story for a Border Patrol agent, too. Sometimes you have to tell a story for a rich person, too. But everybody wants to know that they've been here and they've been seen and they've been honored as human beings, including my abuelita with her crazy parrot in her bra. You know, that's our job, to tell those stories. I used to end all of my talks with this one little phrase. I stopped because U2 made it a song lyric, so I felt like I was copying U2. But I always ended it, and I'll end these comments, because I know we have some Q&A. But um, the real point is there is no them. There is only us. And our job is to remind people that we are us. There aren't thems everywhere. We're here. We're not here very long, so that's what I'm trying to do. I'm really excited that this is going on. So that's what I've got. I'm going to go sit with my colleagues. Thank you. This is for Mr. Rat. I just want um, your um, opinion. I saw in the news this morning that um, some politicians, um, politicians who are accustomed to, or get in office by scary people. Um, they said that, <laughs> that now people are crossing the southern border, people who are soldiers of ISIS, and not only that, people who have Ebola. Yeah. So uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, that's a good one. I heard that too, yep. ISIS, they look like Mexicans, and they got Ebola. I, you know, I'm, I don't, uh, I, the things I've heard, 
about what's coming across our border into the United States my whole life is just so mind-boggling that I'm just not surprised, you know. Back not long ago, there were full Russian and Chinese armies hiding out there. We've got to drive across the border in army tanks. Um, if you listen to late night radio, you'll hear anything. I, I, I just did uh, some stuff in Montreal. And it was really interesting listening to the Canadians talk about immigration stuff. And it hit me. I was just stunned because they kept talking about all those problems south of the border. <laughs> South of the border. I realized they were talking about us. <laughs> oh boy, you people. And one of them said, you know, we just make believe you guys don't exist. We're just dealing directly with Mexico now. I know. I was really offended. Wait a minute. So, you know, I I I don't know what that's about, but I do know that um, every time there's a southern border, somebody thinks badly about it. It's really odd, you know. In Mexico, all, all apologies to my beloved consul, you know, I put it in a book. I heard, we were talking about it today with the students, I heard on Mexican talk radio in Guadalajara, this guy, I, I don't know what his name is, but I call him Russo Limpaso. <laughs> and he was going crazy on Mexican talk radio that the damn Guatemalans and Hondurans are coming to Mexico, taking jobs getting a good education, getting good health care, and the only solution is to build a wall on our southern border to keep up Guatemalans. And I thought, what rich opportunity for irony, you know? But for a while, it was Argentinos. So I, I don't know, you know, sometimes you see, you see people who are cartographers who point out that the only reason the globe is the way it is is because we've all agreed it is. Maybe we're actually the other way. Maybe Tierra del Fuego is on top. What would happen then if those were the... I don't know. Maybe it's psychological. Someone's in the basement, no matter where you go. So I guess in Argentina, they're like, those damn penguins down there. I, I, I don't know. I don't really believe ISIS warriors are infected with Ebola and coming through Nogales, personally. But anything's possible also. That's the nightmare, isn't it? You know? When I was working with the Border Patrol, one of those agents said to me, you know, the only terrorist they ever actually caught was coming through Canada. Remember that? He was coming through Canada with bomb. So that was kind of interesting. But I, I, I'm, I'm speechless. Um, you know, I, I, sometimes you have to maintain a bit of humor about you because there's just no way to deal with it. I mean, I've heard and I'm sure You've heard that canard for a long time. There's Arabs coming through, you know. Arabs, Arabs, Arabs. And I I I I have no I have no proof of anything. Just I just sit back and think, you know. And when it when it turned like when CNN became the Ebola network um, this week, first it was the Malaysian Airlines network, remember that? And then they tried to make it the Obama saluted with a coffee cup network, but that didn't have traction. So, but fortunately, Ebola started, and we're all going to die now. Um, you know, they have to fill a news cycle, and um, so any 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 theory gets aired, and it gets a lot of play because you got to keep talking. Um, you know, I keep thinking maybe what'll happen if there's some horrible meltdown in Norseman lands, and you know. Will we also have like keep those damn Vikings out of the United States? I don't know. You know, I think the clock turns and
the focus will move to someone else one day. I mean, after all, our biggest enemy in the world was Grenada for a little while. <laughs> Show them! But I don't, I don't buy it, but that's just me. You have been listening to celebrated author Luis Alberto Urea giving the keynote address to the documented border exhibit and digital archive on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. In October 2014, the University Libraries, the Confluence Center, the UA School of Art, the UA School of Journalism, and the Center for Border and Global Journalism convened to hold an opening event for the Documented Border Exhibit and Digital Archive. The Documented Border Exhibit and Digital Archive shares original border-related research material collected and curated by University of Arizona faculty along the U.S.-Mexico border. This innovative open-access archive documents personal stories of journalists who have been silenced and government processes that cannot be videotaped or photographed. The documented border can be accessed through the UA Library's special collections. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager.